Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Irina Manta, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. We will discuss her provocative new paper, Tender Lies, which will appear in the Wake Forest Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Irina. Thanks so much, Brian. Great to be here. So I wanted to start by congratulating you on all the great press you've been getting for this article, the op-ed in the Washington Post and all the recent television and, and radio interviews. It's really exciting. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been really fun and uh, great to see that there's so much interest for this topic. Yeah, it seems to have really hit a nerve uh, with the popular media. And so I was wondering if you could just start out by kind of identifying the problem that you're discussing and um, and why you think it's happening? Well, it turns out that um, 80% of people lie on online dating apps. Uh, and those lies might be small. It might be somebody lying a little bit about their height or their weight. But some of the lies are also quite significant. So people lying about their marital status or employment or things like that. Um, the reason that it's happening and that it's happening on, on such a scale is because uh, individuals want to be able to have sex with others or have some kind of romance, romantic relationships with others without uh, giving away pieces of information that might convince the other person not to have such sex or relationships with the individual. And what's happening now through the online dating apps is that people really get to know uh, and encounter individuals that are completely outside of their social circles. So they might not have a single acquaintance in common, whether it's in social circles or professional circles. As a result of that, pretty much liars can get away with almost anything because there are no repercussions as a sort of as a social matter, as a matter of their daily lives. Uh, and so there's really not much of an incentive for them to stop. So pretty much anybody that's been on an online dating app for long enough has been uh, lied to either a little bit or a lot. Uh, and I think that's part of where the popular interest comes from. Right. So do you think this is a problem that's new in kind or maybe a problem that's more like new in scale in some sense? Um, ultimately, probably in scale, in a sense. Now, look, there have always been people who they met somebody at a bar and they spun some kind of tale, right, to, to try to get the person better or whatnot. So th that's been around for a long time. Also, if we go farther back, kind of, we, we see that seduction uh, has been, of course, around and lies and seduction have been around for a real long time. So if we think about that as a category, this is not really new. The things that are new about it are... Uh, as you and I were both just saying, the scale. But interestingly enough, also as a matter of law, uh, the fact that now we have this huge evidentiary trail. So we see that if somebody said something on an app and that doesn't correspond to reality, right? That's something you could show a judge later. Uh, or we have these long texting histories between people. And so those things really are quite new. I see. So it's not just that the problem has changed. It's also that the potential for enforcement is more realistic, perhaps, than it used to be in the past. 
Yes, that's exactly how I see it. Now, uh, you know, the, the way that I would address it is through uh, a, a pretty modest civil solution. So imposing statutory sanctions uh, that could be applied in small claims court. So in a place like New York City, where I live, uh, you might be able to get $5,000 uh, that way. Or um, in Washington, D.C., you might be able to get $10,000. But for repeat offenders, that would really add up. And people could could just go to small claims court, you know, show what was on the app, show what was in the tax, and those things would create a presumption. And then the other individual would have the opportunity to overturn the presumption if he or she can show that uh, perhaps later on they actually uh, told the truth, they explained that they had lied previously before sexual intercourse actually took place. Um, but if they didn't, if they sort of misled the person up to the point of sexual intercourse, uh, then they would indeed be liable. Okay, interesting. So I, I, I want to get more detail about your specific proposal, but I was wondering if we, if we kind of set some some groundwork for that uh, by you kind of explaining a little bit how these dating apps work in a really basic way and the kinds of information that people are expected to provide through them. Because, you know, although it seems like they're very popular, uh, not everyone has used them. And I'm I'll confess, I actually don't really know how most of the ones you're talking about actually work. So there are different kinds of apps and websites and, you know, some uh, services provide both a website format and an app. The the best known apps like Tinder tend to have a um, profile that will give you the person's name. Uh, usually it'll have like age, maybe where they went to college or something like that. Um, and then they can fill out a couple of other things about themselves, like they might have their job or, or things like that. And it's pretty open. There are other ones like OkCupid that have much more detailed information uh, in, in the website format. People can answer hundreds uh, or more uh, questions about themselves. And then there's like a, a compatibility match percentage that is calculated uh, that's of dubious validity uh, with, with other individuals. And so um, there it's a little more detailed as to like the person's exact like status and, and job and hobbies and you know all of these different things that it'll ask questions about. It'll ask what the person is looking for are they monogamous or not? So again, it depends a bit on which service that one is using. And okay. just to kind of give the, the very basic idea, right? People have heard the term right swiping, left swiping. When you're looking at an app like Tinder, right? Like an individual will swipe to the right if they're interested in having an interaction with the person to the left if they're not. And if the other person also right swiped, then a match is created uh, and people can communicate with each other. So that's sort of one format. And then another format that you see a lot is one where you can actually initiate contact with people without their having... Uh, had to be a match like that in the first place. I see. I see. Okay. So some of them are are very much kind of mutual interest based and others are more kind of unilateral interest based. It sounds like a lot of them are heavily based on photographs as well. Yes. Photographs play a, a big role. Um, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a problem as well because people who are trying to fake things will often also use photographs that will either not really show their face or they're going to use a photograph of somebody that's 
not even uh, themselves, but might be like uh, a celebrity that kind of looks like them, right? So like you wouldn't even necessarily be able to tell when you meet the person that it's not them, but at the same time, that way they can make sure not to get caught by people who might know them. Okay. So it, it sounds like these different apps require people or permit people to provide different kinds of information. And and as I understand your proposal, it's to sort of direct some form of civil enforcement against certain kinds of misrepresentations or lies that people might make about the information that they're providing through through these apps or or websites about themselves. Uh, and in your paper, you distinguish between sort of non-actionable, quote-unquote, puffery, which I was glad to use that term because I remember it from from my corporations class, um, and uh, and fraud, right? And, and, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how to distinguish or how you think we ought to distinguish between puffery and fraud in a dating context in relation to your proposal. Sure. So the idea of having material misrepresentations that count uh, is not new to the law. Right. We, we, you have that idea in, in a lot of different areas. Um, I myself come from the intellectual property law world, and so I drew inspiration from the way that we handle trademarks. Uh, and, and there, that is the test that the, the law uses. So, you know, there are sort of different ways that legislators could approach this. They could have a statute that, um, specifically lists categories that are going to count, or they could use this more general language of material misrepresentations. And then a court would have to engage in uh, decision-making where they would ask a question along the lines of, would a, a reasonable person have uh, used this piece of information? Would that piece of information have been material for a reasonable person to decide whether to have sexual intercourse with somebody or not? And so the, the, some of the biggies, again, might be things like uh, marital status or employment or, or things like that, uh, where we might say, yeah, you know what, like a reasonable person very much could care whether this individual was married or not when making that decision. Uh, so the law is actually quite experienced with dealing with this kind of test. In that sense, it is not a, it, it would not be a huge change. What is a change is what we're applying it to. And what I have seen both in the decisions when people have tried to bring torts in such situations and sort of in, in the reaction that some people have, um, including oftentimes people who have not used these dating apps and sites, uh, is this reaction of, um, well, you know, th th what's the big deal, right? Like, what is, first of all, they're blaming the victim that the victim is stupid and the victim should have figured it out. And, you know, I, I, I can give you more detail about how that's not always so uh, simple. But leaving that aside, they really seem to question the harm. And the harm is significantly quite large. There is a dignitary harm and, and an emotional harm that can come in this kind of situation. And then also some quite practical harms. So imagine, for example, a, a woman that's perhaps in like her uh, late 
late 30s or early 40s, um, hasn't had kids yet. Uh, and and so let's say she's looking for a, a potential relationship through these apps. And sure, you never know if it's going to work out with somebody, right? But that's different from this kind of very predatory behavior where somebody knows from the start, they're married, they're not planning on having an actual relationship with this person, like that will you know, lead to uh, anything particularly serious. Uh, and they just kind of rope that person in. Well, now all this comes out after, say, six months or a year. That might have made the marginal difference between that woman being able to have biological children and not, right? And so for courts to, to just kind of, and, and for sort of, um, listeners, right, to just kind of dismiss all these harms as really not that big a deal and run of the mill, uh, I really find that uh, somewhat disturbing. Okay. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense to me. And I noticed something that I found interesting in your, one of many things that I found interesting in in your paper was your observation that these now largely defunct causes of action known as heart balm ports seem to inflect or discourage or somehow maybe just provide cover for judges to not apply fraud type um, theories in a dating context. And I was wondering if you could just really briefly sort of explain broadly speaking, what was a heart bomb tort and, you know, why did they go away and, and, what kind of influence did you see that change having on the way that courts think about the kinds of harms that you're concerned about? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of interesting things about the hard bomb statutes and also about the existing criminal laws in this area that, as you're pointing out, end up meaning that victims in these situations don't get recourse. So with the, the hard bomb statutes, you know, we're coming from a world, if you, if you go back far enough in time, where uh, the norm was that most forms of sex were not allowed, right? Like these days, most forms of sex are allowed unless the law uh, carves out fairly narrow exceptions to that. But mostly uh, the world used to be based on this very heteronormative, right, very maritally focused um, view of sex. And the idea was that if a, if a man promised a uh, woman that he was going to marry her if she agreed to have sex with him, uh, and then he reneged on that, that he had wronged her. And, and actually, originally, it wasn't even so much about him wronging her. It was about him wronging her father because she mm. was a form of property that he had now damaged by taking away her virginity and she was now essentially damaged goods and it was going to be harder for the father to you know get her married away in some other way uh, as a result of all this so so the law sought to punish uh, those kinds of actions and then what happened uh, down the line is as we sort of in the modern era a lot of these hard bomb statutes went away um Many of them in, went away in sort of the 20th century because they were viewed as offensive. So this idea that the, the woman is some kind of some kind of good, right, or or that there's a form of defilement that might take place in this context was very uh, offensive to um, uh, the view that 
encompass gender equality. And so that sort of went away. And, and I think that's somewhat understandable. But, you know, that just because those laws were based on a on a um, flawed rationale and didn't really fit the times does not mean that there were not some other types of towards that, you know, whose time may now have come. Uh, and it, it, we also we see general confusion on this topic of, well, we shouldn't have, you know, one thing I hear from a number of people is we shouldn't have government in the bedroom. And that all sounds very nice, but we're going to have government in the bedroom as long as we care about consent. And that is a good thing. Right? And I say that as somebody who, as you know, is not uh, the first to jump on like, you know, some kind of big government solution to things. But if you care about consent, if you care about, in some more extreme cases, sexual assault, you cannot remove government from the bedroom. So that argument does not strike me as uh, particularly, particularly convincing. Uh, to me, this is really a matter of uh, what it means to have consent. And, and the current legal landscape is quite puzzling because we have a number of states where, for example, um, if you were to pretend to be your twin brother and, and lie to your twin brother's wife about your identity uh, and have sex with her, that would very much be a, an offense and that would be a criminal offense. It would be a form of sexual assault. Uh, and, and, you know, those laws have been around for a long time and have kind of stood the test of time. So somehow faking one's identity in that kind of context is actionable. And so people will say, well, if that were to happen to you, something that extreme, go to the criminal law and otherwise don't bother us even in the in the tort law, which, again, is sort of uh, is sort of puzzling in a sense as well. Or, you know, another example, and again, this is from a, a real case, right, is somebody kind of like sneaking into someone's bedroom at night and pretending to be the person's spouse uh, or, you know, just anything sort of of that nature where people pretended to be a specific other individual. Well, somehow that was actionable, even with criminal law. And yet other things, and again, this is very much of state by state. But when it comes to my proposal, right, like some people see that as kind of something entirely different. And I, I just don't see that. Yeah, there's kind of a, a real irony I saw there in your paper, almost like kind of adding insult to injury. I mean, it seems like courts look to these kind of antique and demeaning heart balm statutes and assume that any kind of enforcement of fraud in a dating context would in some way be similarly demeaning to women. And so, you know, with this facade of, of being uh, respectful, they end up preventing people from pursuing real modern uh harms to their to their dignity and to their well-being yeah i think that's right and yeah, i think that also um you know, gender is a really complex factor here because the laws that I propose would be gender neutral. But from what we're hearing anecdotally, and this is exactly what's uh, making some of the men's rights advocates on the Internet angry, uh, this would be a measure that more often would help women against male perpetrators. Um, and, you know, it's uh, I, I think that anyone 
should be protected from what I view as as essentially not really consensual sex, men and women. Um, and, and, you know, the sort of the number of perpetrators and who chooses to bring the actions will shake out however it shakes out. Uh, but there are certain factors, certainly, that, that affect women more, such as we were discussing the, the biological nature of things, right? And that uh, the passage of time is in many cases more harmful uh, to women, both directly and indirectly, and sort of, quote unquote, wasting time with a predator ends up being oftentimes costlier for women. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and one thing I was hoping you could talk about a little bit as well is I think you did a really interesting job of using trademark law as an analogy for the kind of regime that you think ought to be adopted. And I was wondering if you could kind of explain that analogy and why you think that kind of a trade trademark-esque framework is a helpful way of thinking about the nature of the harm in question. Well, I view the dating world as a form of marketplace. Some people find that offensive. I, I don't. Uh, I think it's a world in which you know people are looking for a, a particular uh, type of other individual, not that differently from how people go into the commercial marketplace and look for a certain good. So if you are um, looking for a, a certain brand at a store, you want to be able to go there. You want that brand to not confuse you. You want to actually get what you want. And you don't want it to have false information about what is contained within the good that you get. And while certainly there are a million differences, right, between uh, a, a human being and a bottle of soda, right, uh, there is that aspect of similarity as well, where, you know, at the end of the day, we are dealing with limited time, human life is finite, uh, and there are going to be search costs that are going to be increased, both in the trademark world and in the dating world, if somebody feeds you misleading information. And so that's what drew me to um, to trademark law to say, hey, look, we have some solutions there in terms of what kind of legal tests to use. And, and that is really where we ask, for example, if somebody uh, tries to register a trademark that might be deceptive, uh, such as the case that I mentioned of the, the seat covers for cars that were being uh, marketed under the name Lovey Lamb, where the court asks, all right, well, you know, was it made out of lamb? Okay, the answer is no, right? So we're first going to look at whether a piece of information is false. Then we're going to look at uh, was that piece of information believed by the other side. And third, we're going to look at whether that piece of information was material in the purchasing decision. And in the Lavi Lamb case, the court said, yeah, it absolutely matters to people uh, whether they're going to um, buy something that they think is made out of lamb versus something that's synthetic. Some people are not going to want synthetic at all, or they might not want it at that price, and so on. Um, and, and to me, it strikes me as rather bizarre that the law protects individuals more against 
against having the wrong fabric in their seat cover <laughs> as opposed to you know having a, having a, a having sexual intercourse with somebody who has misled them about fundamental attributes about themselves so i i kind of looked at um again these kind of similarities in the trademark world but based on both kind of the search costs in the marketplace this idea of misleading and of confusion uh and ultimately a um basic notion of efficiency. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it almost struck me as like a right of publicity version of passing off in a strange way. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, there are a number of sort of things in that general world, right? Trademarks, uh, both as a matter of common law and statutory, um, and, uh, you know, false advertising, just sort of that universe as a whole. We could also look at other forms of fraud and other scholars have done that as well. Um, just sort of thinking about how we, we have that kind of notion of fraud in any number of commercial, um, settings and the people who oppose it, I think, tend to oppose the idea either because, like I said, they find there to be something offensive about this um, idea of, you know, likening this to commerce. And somehow, apparently, that's more offensive than what the perpetrators are doing to the victims. Uh, mm -hmm. So there, there's sort of that whole thing. Um, or um, they think that it's a slippery slope. We're going to allow it for this. Soon we're going to have sort of a truth police that's going to sit there and scour every detail of every dating profile. And I just don't see any reason that that would happen. It didn't happen in, in the trademarks world. It didn't happen when we came to other kinds of fraud. We've been able to implement these tests without huge problems, right? I mean, there's certainly going to be kind of cases on the cusp and, and gray zones, but it's also the kind of situation where there's there's a pretty easy way to not have these problems, which is to not lie on these profiles, right? Uh, so there, there's a very easy way to not, you know, not have that issue. Um, and then, yeah, once you've, you know, once you've started lying uh, and once you've started sort of taking these risks, I'm just not that sympathetic because you were willing to impose these risks on the other individual. You were willing to say, this is something that may or may not matter to the other person, and I'm going to actively lie about it. And for you to turn around and say, oh, but wait a second, like for the government to say that this may or may not have mattered, no, no, no that's not okay. I don't want to get in trouble for it. Uh, you know, I think you should be the one to kind of have to internalize the risk to the extent we're going to have a gray zone. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, something I thought was really interesting and subtle about your paper in the sense that on its surface, it looks to be just about people telling the truth. But in a sense, it's ultimately really a paper about increasing the efficiency of the dating market, as it were, by facilitating the um, communication of truthful rather than false information among, you know, parties where there's a lot of inf potential information costs involved. And, and people usually think about, you know, efficiency as being economic efficiency. And as you pointed out in previous papers, I think like uh, hedonic trademarks and whatnot, right? We value a lot of other things uh, as well. And here it seems like you're talking about, you know, how do we maximize the hedonic efficiency of the dating market? 
I think that's right. Uh, I think that's a good way of putting it. And right, it, it's rather ironic because there, you know, there's this kind of fear of this turning very, very economic, right? But uh, in a sense, it's 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 the opposite, right? I mean, it's really recognizing values that are not just economic and recognizing harms that are not just economic. Uh, but really, like you said, sort of trying to get greater efficiency. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I really think that is going to uh, benefit society, right? If people can kind of find each other, because that you know, the problem is also, uh, and, and again, let's say we assume that many of the victims are women. You know, this also, what's happening now also harms good men. Because good men are having trouble finding good women uh, if the good women are sort of like distracted, right, by the liars along the way. And so they, they, there's a lot of noise in the marketplace that sort of ends up hurting, uh, I think, both sides uh, that are that are trying to kind of find each other. Uh, and and there, so there are ways to, to get around that. I mean, I, I know that the dating app makers themselves are, are right now really thinking about these issues and, and trying to think about what might be some of the measures that they can implement. But uh, it's really not that simple. Um, and, you know, it, it's there are a number of sort of technological barriers uh, that people often don't realize there are barriers in terms of the more disclosure you demand from the, the sort of like potential perpetrators, the more disclosure you might demand from people who might be afraid of other things like you know, they might be worried about stalkers and things like that. Right. And now if the more information they have to give to the app makers, right, it might be sort of a problem from that perspective. So it's really a rather thorny issue even if you have an app maker that you know is trying to do right by its users uh so that's why i think we're, we're gonna we're gonna have to find some creative solutions and it's becoming more and more important because the number of people that are meeting uh their significant others online is uh rapidly increasing uh i also think anecdotally things are changing such that there's now almost more of an expectation that if you want to be dating well go to a dating app right like and and some people in, in part because of that in part because of other factors are sort of less likely to seek out romantic interactions just like in random spaces um, so, I, you know, I think there's also a real disconnect that we see between individuals who maybe have been married for a number of years now and so they've never used these apps and they kind of view these apps still as kind of weird and for weirdos and for quote unquote losers, uh, which I believe is a really unfair characterization and, and it's, it already is a mass phenomenon and it is a growing one. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's sort of we're just going to see more and more of that. And so if we want things to to run smoothly and we don't want kind of the worst actors to uh, to mess things up for everybody, uh, the law might need to intervene at this point. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, that's very true. And in relation to that, actually, uh, and especially the point you made about kind of People maybe having reservations, uh, especially older people, perhaps having reservations about dating apps. I wanted to run a hypothetical by you and and see how you would respond to it. And I think you'll find it interesting. Um, so, you know, in addition to the problem that you've identified, I think a lot of people are, you know, concerned about quote unquote hookup culture, right? The idea that like people are kind of indiscriminately having sex, and they for for one reason or another they think that's 
that's not something that we should be encouraging. And at least in theory, it seems like some of these dating apps may encourage or at least facilitate um, that kind of activity. Now, of course, the government can't prohibit that kind of behavior, but it also doesn't necessarily have to encourage it, right? It's not obligated to make the dating market more efficient necessarily, however you want to define efficiency. And it, it reminded me of an uh, of an article that Dan Crane wrote a while back in an antitrust context, arguing that, you know, if we take antitrust principles seriously, that they're trying to, you know, reduce prices and maximize consumer surplus, then the government shouldn't enforce antitrust law uh, against cigarette companies because we actually would prefer that prices be higher and that the market be less efficient so that people smoke less. So how would you respond to someone who were to argue that, well, we shouldn't adopt this kind of proposal uh, because we don't want the dating market to be more efficient? Are they they targeting the wrong kind of efficiency or what would the problem with that argument be? I think the problem is that it's actually the the effect is the opposite of what you just described in the uh, dating app situation. So, you know, sort of leaving aside like, you know, are hookups good or bad? Or, you know, we have some data about like how uh, STDs are on the rise, right? As a, many say as a result of, of this dating app culture, et cetera. Um, so, you know, there are some sort of public health conversations that are being had about that. But, you know, leaving aside any sort of ethical quandaries uh, about them or not, to the extent that people are concerned about these things, what is happening now is imagine, you know, one of these sort of predators, one of the, especially of the the serial predators uh, that I'm describing to you, that's somebody who might end up having sex with lots and lots and lots of people, right? Because again, they're not usually seeking out anything long term or particularly serious and eventually they're going to uh, they're going to get caught anyway right so they end up having sex with lots of people whether you think that's a problem like is it ethically or as a public health matter or whatever else as opposed to maybe some people not even being interested in that many sex partners but they can't find the individuals that would actually be interested in long term relationships which would reduce the number of hookups so if anything, right, like this would uh, by by sort of getting people to find each other uh, that are that are more uh, interested in, in something more long term, it would, I think, actually counteract in some ways hookup culture. Now, again, that's not my goal in all this. Right. I think, you know, if people want to hook up, they should hook up and whatever. Uh, but uh, but my goal is really more about the, the consensual nature of things. But I think the side effect would actually be fewer hookups, because what really ends up happening happening is uh, some of these predators will intentionally uh, use relationship language to rope in people. So they will actually, so uh, for example, there is a a woman named Anna Rowe in Great Britain, uh, whose story has also been um, publicized a lot lately, along with my commentary of of my own piece uh, in the Washington Post. And uh, the individual that she met, who turned out to have been um, married at the time and to have created this whole host of fake social media handles, etc., so that even if you Googled him, you wouldn't figure it out, and etc. So he had like 
like a very sort of solid story for why he was only seeing her during the week and so on. Um, so somebody like that, he was very much pushing the relationship idea, claiming that he was very serious about this, etc. And so she ended up spending quite a bit of time with him, uh, time that would have been better spent elsewhere while he was sort of hooking up with her and with other women uh, as, you know, in, in this case, as, a, as an extramarital matter. Uh, so, you know, I think I think the critics should actually welcome the opportunity for the apps to become uh, more efficient if what they want to see is people genuinely pairing off rather than kind of hanging around Tinder world for years and years. <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering, you you kind of, I think in your paper, at least my read of it was, you sort of characterize among the sort of paradigmatic lies that ought to be this, the, the subject of enforcement lying about marital status. So I was wondering if you could just briefly discuss what enforcement would look like in your model uh, in a context where someone had lied about their marital status to a uh, to a romantic potential romantic partner with whom they had sexual intercourse. Sure. So once this all comes out, um, the victim could take the information from the dating app and you know any texts, etc., uh, to small claims court. I mean, you know, they would file a complaint. Uh, there would be a hearing, and the other individual would have uh, a chance to defend himself or herself, and then. If it indeed turns out that it was true that, you know, let's say we're assuming that marital status is indeed one of these paradigmatic uh, material lies. It turns out the person did lie, did not correct that lie before intercourse took place. Uh, then the individual would be awarded the statutory sanction that, like I said, would be set at whatever the cap is of the small claims court uh, in that jurisdiction. And that person would be awarded whatever X number of thousands of dollars. Uh, and for that victim, sort of the the case might be over, although if other victims come along, right, like the victims might actually also have an opportunity to find each other that way uh, if several of them file uh, these cases. In the case of Anna Rowe that I was just mentioning to you, uh, she was one of at least 14 women uh, that had been um, victimized. So that also can be um, that also can be empowering for, for people to find each other and then perhaps take collective action outside of that. Right. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I get the impre- I got the impression reading your paper that the point was not to come up with like a taxonomy of actionable lies, but rather to sort of give a broader proposal, which could get fleshed out in context. But I couldn't help myself. I still wondered like what would count and what wouldn't count. So I was wondering if you would, if you wouldn't mind kind of walking through a, a few kind of potential misleading or false claims and reflecting on how you think they might appropriately fit within the paradigm that that you've proposed. Sure. So, and, and there's no doubt that some categories are going to be tricky, uh, and you know, community standards are gonna, you know, have to uh, are gonna differ a little bit in terms of what counts. Um, I think marital status is gonna be something that's gonna, you know, that's definitely going to be up there. Uh, some lies, you know, this may or may not be as prominently there. It really depends on what exactly the app asks, but people lying about whether they already have children, um, it, the ability to have children. So, you know, like people who end up lying about whether they've 
had a vasectomy or not or things mm -hmm. like that uh, that might also be you know sort of fall into that category and you know we can also kind of think through whether it needed to have started on the app itself whether it being in the in a texting trail would be sufficient so that's sort of another conversation whether it could have been on another platform like people who meet on Facebook or something like that so the sort of source right might also uh, end up differing but definitely sort of lies and, and by the way this is one category where oftentimes the victims are men right so mm. some people seem to assume that like I'm, I'm excluding all that but i actually do believe that if somebody lied about uh taking birth control that that's something that could definitely be actionable um so this could sort of goes in in both directions right both people who uh claim they're able to have children knowing full, fully well that they they can't and vice versa so i think those are both categories we should look at the things that get tricky i can give you a case uh from uh great britain that actually led to criminal sanctions is um there was a woman who tricked another woman into believing that she was a man um, by using and, and this was not a case of a, someone who was transsexual or anything like that. Uh, this was a, a, a clear case of somebody uh, using a prosthetic penis and um, and, and otherwise not having a, an identity as a man really just in this scenario um, and, and sort of tricking her into sex multiple times. The victim was extremely traumatized uh, and the, in this case, female perpetrator went to uh, went to prison for for what she did, went to jail for what she did. Um, so you know, some of these gender things will be tricky if it does get into that kind of territory of well, does somebody have to disclose if they're transsexual and things like that? So that uh, I think is going to be a bigger conversation. Religion also, uh, maybe somebody only wants to date people from a certain religion, you know. Perhaps if the, the the lie is very much non-ambiguous, right? Like, I think I would just require a higher standard when we're in these tricky categories. So like I said, in that British case, that person was very much not someone who was transsexual. Uh, in the case of religion, if you have somebody who didn't practice a religion whatsoever and never held himself or herself out to be that religion and is just claiming that in the dating context, right? Like Those are the kinds of cases uh, that I think could potentially also be uh, actionable employment status and employment type. Again, it would have to be very clear cut. But I, I do think sort of misleading people about, you know, your your profession as a whole is a fairly fundamental part of who you are and it might matter and you know some people are very dismissive they're like oh now the person's upset because you know she thought she had been sleeping with a millionaire but he's actually poor and it's like you know i have a little bit of a so what reaction to that i mean even if you don't like that um that's the person's right. You know, it is the person's right to decide who they want to have sex with. Uh, and if you sort of don't like who that person is, well, you know, there are plenty of other people around. And even if there aren't sort of like, well, it's too bad. Um, so I, I think there's sort of a lot of like judging people when it comes to some of these categories. But I, I think that's to some extent that's unfair. It might not be the things that matter to you and me, right? And these categories that I list are not necessarily all things 
things that I personally care about or whatnot uh, in, you know, in another person. But I think people should have the right to make their own decisions in what is the most intimate sphere of their lives. Uh, and so those are those are some of the things I would look at. What I would not really look at so much is stuff like, you know, height, weight, all these things you can kind of usually figure out pretty easily. Um, and when we think about the kind of trauma also to, to someone's life, like, I, I think things like marital status are really going to have the biggest trauma, right? Like people being like, oh, my God, I became a part of an affair. I didn't want to. And now I sort of got roped into this. Other people, uh, including the sort of wronged spouse, right, might not might not believe that one actually knew uh, that one didn't actually know the truth. So I think that's much more dramatic than, oh, goodness, like this person was actually, you know, 50 pounds heavier and I didn't realize, right? And, and people really kind of trying to, to draw these false um, equivalencies, uh, it, it's very problematic. Like they'll say, well, isn't makeup a lie? Isn't a push-up bra a lie? But not all lies are created equal. Uh, and I think we all kind of know that. Right. So this is this is one of the things that I was thinking about was sort of how normatively laden should our evaluation of the relative actionability of different kinds of misrepresentations be? And in particular, I was thinking of a couple examples that you gave in your paper. So you, you talked about one circumstance in which a man misrepresented his age, claiming to be, you know, 20 years younger than he actually was. And I don't recall that you kind of straight out came out and said that, that that should be an actionable lie, but you suggested that that was a really improper thing for someone to do. And, and by contrast, when you talked about like misrepresentative photographs, it seemed like that you, you, you it seemed to me like you saw that as a less actionable or possibly non-actionable harm. And part of me was wondering, I mean, is it that we think it's more wrong to lie about your age than it is to misrepresent your appearance or is it less harmful or I was wondering if you had yeah. like sort of what the framework well, let me say that. first that the main reason I brought up the story of the individual who um, lied about his age and lied by quite a bit was more so because of what that person said to um to the other individual and this was a this is a story mm. where that where sex didn't actually end up happening um mm -hmm. but uh wh what happened is that uh, the the excuse of the liar was but you don't understand like if i if i told my real age uh you know women would not you know women that are x number of years younger would not be willing to go out with me and so th that to me was very, very striking because it, it sort of it was this very sort of open confession of, yes, I am doing this to circumvent people's wills. I am doing this because I know fully well that this is not what these women want. And I want to trick them into doing what I want. So that, that to me is the striking part of that case. You know, whether we sort of make age actionable or, or not, like age can be relevant. Again, some of that might be for, for biological reasons or people might have concerns about ending up with a partner down the line that's going to be too much um, older than themselves or whatnot. Like there, you know, there are many things that people might be thinking about. But, you know, in general, what I would say is I myself know that the reasonable person test is by no means 
perfect. It's something I've talked about in the copyright context and elsewhere. But at the end of the day, I think the only way we can really apply the reasonable person test is that we have to ask whether it would matter to the average person. And, and I think that's the way to make it. Um, it's normative in a sense, because, yes, you know, we're going to look at the, the sort of average of that community. But I don't think we have that much of a choice if we're going to do something about it um, that, that, you know, we, we have to look at, all right, what would most people right likely care about or what would the average person care about? It has to be something in in that world, because otherwise, when we apply the reasonable person test, there is always a risk that the judge or the jury will say to himself or herself or themselves like, well, I'm reasonable. Here's what I would do. Or here's what I would think. And, and that's not what that test is supposed to be about, because that just turns it into a actually completely subjective test about that one person or, or those 12 people or whatnot. Right. So that's why I would say, you know, sort of look at like average norms. And, and again, they, I think that we, we actually do have a sense and we can choose to be more liberal or more conservative in terms of like how many of these lies count. But um I also believe that we should not get lost in the weeds. So just because there are going to be some tough cases, some cases at the margin, does not mean that there aren't cases that are very, very clear. And, and I think, like, if nothing else, if we take marital status, right, that is very, very clear that that is something that most people care about, whether it's because they don't want to have sex with a married person, period, or whether it is that even if they perhaps might be willing to do that, it's something that they would only want to do knowingly. Right. This is not this is not a detail to most people, regardless of how they feel about adultery. So there are some categories that, are, you know, we can sort of argue age here or there. Right. Should it be there? Um, but but that, the fact that it's it's going to be hard to draw the exact line should not make us afraid to at least apply this to the very clear cases. OK, so there was there was one category of what strikes me as hard cases, and I, I wanted to get your take on it. So it was. What about people who misrepresent their intentions, right? So, for example, someone who represents themselves as looking for a marriage or a long-term relationship when that's really not what they want, or, or vice versa, for that matter, right? It would be equally misleading for someone to say, I'm looking for a one-night stand when what they really want is a, a long-term boyfriend or girlfriend or or, or a marriage situation. Or by corollary, right? Someone who, for example, misrepresents their level of attraction to the person who they're, they're starting a relationship with for, um, kind of instrumental means, right? Say the person has money and they want that person to pay for dinners or something along, along those lines. Would, 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 in your mind, would, would that be the kind of misrepresentation that could be actionable? Cause it seems like it would be, it would be really difficult to <laughs> to 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 do that without the risk of you know not allowing people to, like change their minds for example yeah so no i can say unambiguously that that would not be actionable under my proposal um you know i i mentioned in the paper how i'm interested especially in pieces of information that are binary 
right? Like that are, it's like, okay, we have a fairly clear sense here of what's true or false, right? Um, and, and when it, like you just said, I mean, when it comes to these kinds of things, people, have so many different definitions, for example, of what it means that they're interested in a relationship. So there are people who are interested in a relationship if the special unicorn comes along, right? And so in their own minds, they they genuinely are interested in a relationship, but they have standards that are so narrow and specific that yeah, in the meantime, they're gonna, you know, have fun with hookups, etc. But they're open, they genuinely are open minded. And their real heart's desire is to find a unicorn. It just so happens that maybe it takes them years, or maybe they never find that person. So has this person now lied, right, by saying they want a relationship? I don't think we can really say that, right? Or it, similarly with with other types of people, like it, it just, uh, people don't have usually intentions that are completely black or white. Uh, in that sense. Uh, and, and like you said, the intentions can also change. Uh, so I, I would not, so th- I think that is overly murky territory. Uh, and, and we can't go that way. Now, look, again, that's not to say that we have to ethically condone it. You know, it doesn't mean mm. that we have to be like, oh, yeah, buddy, good job there, you know, roping in another, you know, another unsuspecting person. Um, and I do think as a society, we can and should do more to discourage that kind of behavior, sort of like if we hear about it in our communities, uh, you know, our friends doing it, et cetera. Um, but I, I don't think that that's something that the law can or should intervene in. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So, Irina, I was wondering, um, in closing, if you would be, if you wouldn't mind kind of in a nutshell, kind of letting people know, you know, why it is you think that this is such an important thing to be thinking about right now and, you know, why they ought to support the kind of proposal that you're putting forward. The use of dating apps is already very prevalent and is rapidly growing. The number of people that are affected uh, by problems arising out of individuals misrepresenting themselves on dating apps um, are are large. uh, And these kinds of lies can have a fundamental and long-term impact on somebody's life, emotional well-being, mental health, uh, and many other aspects. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Irina. This has been a great conversation.